DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's Word and apply His message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Dorn. We are starting our discussion on the Book of Romans tonight, but I'm going to go back to 2 Corinthians. We were just in Corinth last week, and listen to this. Paul's going to use the word comfort five times in two verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So five comforts in that short verse. Now, Benedict said, the world promises you comfort, worldly comforts, and it really does. Like, you can buy the most comfortable chair, relax the back, and you can sit in the most comfortable seat if you fly first class, and you can stay at Comfort Suites because it's really comfortable there, and you can get climate comfort control for the seats in your car. Make sure if you're getting a new vehicle, you get comfort control. And even your toilet tissue can have little air pillows of comfort. So the world does promise you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. The world's comfort is not the Lord's comfort. And the world's comfort is not the comfort that St. Paul is speaking of. Isaiah promised the Lord's comfort would come. And here's what he said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Why will we be comforted in Jerusalem? Because all iniquity would be pardoned there. True iniquity comes when, true part, true comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned. You know that if you're in a fight with your spouse. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned, when one forgives the other. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned. Like in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, there's nothing better than when you hear in persona Christi, the person in Christ that says the prayer of absolution. That true comfort comes through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and it's all sheer gift of the Father's love for us. And listen to the prayer because it's one of Paul's themes in Romans. The priest will raise his hand and say, God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of your Son, you have reconciled the world to yourself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace, and I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And there's no greater feeling than when iniquity is pardoned by a priest in persona Christi following John 20, 20. 
What you forgive is forgiven. What you held bound is held bound. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So this is a major theme of Romans. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has reconciled the world to himself, you are pardoned of your iniquity. You are forgiven of your sins. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anyone in here have not sinned? Raise your hand. All men, all women, all of us need a savior. We all need a way back into right relationship, into righteousness with the Father, with the Trinity. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all for all time. So when we're a baby sheep and we're nursing from our mother, it's pretty innocent, it's pretty sweet. We grow up with our siblings. There might be one black sheep in the family. <laughs> then we go off to college. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Another way Jesus said it to them when the woman was caught in adultery and they said, stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And he said, let him who is out sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away because there was no one without sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Father, forgive them. He takes on our iniquity and he sends comfort. He breathes over his spirit, the spirit of comfort, the counselor. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. True comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned and we are finally back home in right relationship with the Trinity. So let's take a look now at Romans chapters 1 to 4. We must know history because history is his story. His story, the story of Jesus Christ, because he entered time and space and he entered into human history when he took on flesh. And it was at that time that Caesar Augustus was ruling in Rome. We know that Luke says in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This is Julius's son. This is son of God. This is prince of peace was ruling at the time. After him came Tiberius, and we know this was in Jesus' adult years. When he was 30 and came to the Jordan for baptism, Tiberius Caesar was ruling, and Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. After him came Caligula, only for four years, and then Claudius, Emperor Claudius. From 41 AD to 54 AD, this is who is ruling at the time of Paul. And he sends out the Edict of Claudius. What was that? It's really important to understand Romans, to know about the Edict of Claudius, a real thing in Roman history. When in the writings of Suetonius, a Roman historian, we, are know, we know that the Jews were all expelled from Rome. The Christian Jews and the Jews, Jews. Every Jew, every Jew was expelled from Rome under Claudius. We read about it in Acts 18. After this, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome. They've been expelled from Rome. Why are the Jews expelled from the eternal city? There was a huge Jewish population in Rome. We're told in history that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he, Emperor Claudius, expelled them all from Rome. Christus is Christ. The largest city in the Roman Empire, in the city of the world, has expelled all the Jews, evicted them all from the city. Now, when Nero gets into office, he will allow the Jews to come back. Okay, this is important. Nero allows them to come back in 55 AD, six years later. Romans is written in 57 AD by Paul during the reign of Caesar Nero. So from 49 to 55, six years, the Jews are expelled from Rome, Christian Jews. 
So the Gentile Christians took over the church in Rome. While all the Jewish Christians are expelled, the Gentile Christians become the deacons and the priests and the leadership in the church. And it's thriving and it's growing and it's a strong church in Rome. For six years, there are no Jews there and the Gentiles are ruling the church. Now, do you see what's going to happen when they're allowed to come back? There's going to be big tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, we're the circumcised chosen people. Well, so what? You haven't been here for six years and we've been doing all the work and we've been building up the church and we're the body of Christ now and get to the back of the line, you know? And so Paul has to look at this pastorally. The church had been well established in Rome, but now there's tension and there's problems, pastoral problems, when those Jewish Christians come back. A little further background, you'll remember James, the brother of St. John, was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. Also, that went over pretty well with the people, so Herod was going to do it to Peter next. Peter's in prison that night, and an angel of the Lord helps him escape prison. And we're told in Acts 12 that then he, Peter, departed and went to another place. Where did he go? Where did Peter go? The first pope, the leader of the church. Many scholars think he went to Joppa. Others think he went to Caesarea Maritima, two port cities. But Herod will soon leave and go to Caesarea Maritima. Herod's after Peter. If he went to Joppa, he would have had connections. Remember Simon the Tanner, whose house he stayed at when Cornelius and the Gentiles came into the church. If he went to Caesarea Maritima and Herod comes, he's got to get out of there. So he would have jumped on a boat and vamoosed all the way to Rome, Italy. Now, Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea Maritima, and he's also a church historian. And he writes in his writings that St. Peter was in Rome by 42 AD. He places Peter in Rome in 42 AD. St. Luke has Peter back in Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, which took place in 49 AD. So from 42 to 49, Peter could have got that church firmly established before what happened. The expulsion, Claudius kicks them all out. Peter's Jewish, he had to go. He'd be kicked out, which puts him back in Jerusalem at the time of the council. St. Paul writes that Peter was in Syrian Antioch soon after that Jerusalem council in Galatians 2 verse 12. Catholic tradition has Peter back in Rome in the 60s where he was martyred upside down at the order of Caesar Nero. So Luke has Peter at the council in 49 AD. The Edict of Claudius happened in 49 AD. All Jews out of Rome for six years. Nero is reigning. Uh, Tactus, a senator and a Roman historian, writes about Christ, about Pontius Pilate, about a mass execution of Christians on after a six-day fire that burned much of Rome in July of 64 AD. Caesar Nero was quite the emperor. If you've ever read about Nero, his Hebrew gematra spelling of his name adds up to the number of the beast, 666. It is said that when Rome burnt by fire, Nero played his fiddle and watched the city burn and then blamed it all on the Christians, he inflicted the most exquisite torture of class hatred and abominations on the Christian populace. According to Tactus, the historian, not a religious guy, a Roman senator, said Nero ordered Christians to be thrown to dogs while others were crucified or burned to serve as lamps. So he burned the Christians as luminaries in his garden, wrapped them up, soaked them in fuel, and lit them on fire to, to illuminate his gardens in the evening for his parties. St. Peter and St. Paul did not fare well with Nero either. Peter was crucified upside down at his command, and Paul was beheaded at the command of Nero in the mid-60s. So at the very end of the book of Romans, Paul is introducing himself and his teachings to a Christian community already firmly established in Rome. And um, he, didn't found, he didn't found this community. It was there. It was thriving. Another major theme in this Pauline letter of Romans will be obedience of faith. And this is really important to Paul. Your obedience is known to all worldwide. The Roman church was known for their faith and their obedience to the faith. So the obedience of faith is a major theme. Um, in the very last 
chapter of Genesis, close to the end, Jacob is giving his final blessing to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says um, to Judah, which is the tribe Jesus was in, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes. And the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. And Paul will start that letter out saying, we have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. Does that sound like an echo of Jacob's final blessing? The obedience of faith. And he says in the last chapter, sometimes I like to read the end first. It says in chapter 16, the report of your obedience, Romans, has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the commands of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all nations. So faith requires an obedience. The whole Bible from start to finish, is trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. I've had to think of two words that are the theme of the Old Testament. It's trust and obey. So Paul begins his letter with obedience and ends his letter with obedience. That's an obedience sandwich. That means it's super, super important, and Bible scholars call that an inclusio, and it's a real thing. It's that important that he starts the letter with obedience and ends the letter with obedience. The obedience of faith is a major theme for Paul. If he had to write a mission statement for the book of Romans, it might go like this. The purpose of my gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith to all nations. Okay, the Greek word for obey means to hear and obey. It's a single action. You hear and obey. Now, my kids don't do that very well. I say, shut off the TV. Shut off the TV. Can you please shut off the TV? Shut off the TV! Whereas they should hear and obey in one fell swoop, in one action, right? That's what obedience means in the Greek. It is not faith alone, but an obediential faith of action. You hear and do. You hear and obey. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one you obey, either of the sin leading to death or of the obedience leading to righteousness. You are a slave to whatever you obey. Do you obey Christ or do you obey Satan? Because if you obey Christ, that will lead to life. If you obey Satan, that will lead to death. This is what Paul is telling them. And he says, I, Paul, am a slave for Christ. That's going to lead to life. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart to preach the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the good news to you. What is a slave in our catechism? Someone entirely dependent on Christ who gives mission and authority. Ministers are truly slaves of Christ in the image of him who freely took the form of a slave for us. Because the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, but are given to them by Christ. For the sake of others, they must freely become the slaves of all. Where was Father Hazing going right after this to hear confessions? Because he's a slave to Christ, not his words, but those of Christ for the church. And then Paul's going to give a prayer of thanksgiving. Your faith is proclaimed throughout the world, Romans. I, I, I'm asking that God will somehow let me come to you. I want to come and see you. I really have been wanting to for a long time. I've really wanted to come and see you. I'm longing to see you. Because I want to share in your spiritual gifts and strengthen you. And I want mutual encouragement between us. Because your faith is so strong, we could build each other up. He's been longing to go to see the people of Rome. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. Why? Because Paul's Jewish and the edict of Claudius. No Jews in Rome. He cannot go. But he wants to go so bad, and he wants to keep encouraging them. He can't go until after 55 AD, and he was detained then. He couldn't get there until 60 AD when he came in chains as a prisoner. Now he's really a slave. 
He comes to Rome as a prisoner in Acts 28, and he says, and so he came to Rome. The believers from there, when they heard from us, they came as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. They mutually encouraged one another. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So he lives under house arrest with a soldier. Now, Paul never, his intention, his goal was never to go to Rome. That was not his primary goal. He always wanted to go to Spain. He doesn't go to places where the church is thriving and firmly established. There was already a church in Rome. He really wanted to get to Spain, but he would stop by Rome to visit on the way. He says twice, when I go to Spain, when I go to Spain, I want to get to Spain. He wants to get to Spain. He also, in that final chapter at 16, wants to recommend someone, and it's a sister deaconess. It's a female deacon. Her name is Phoebe of the church at Chinchere, that you may receive her in the Lord as benefits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. So the church did have female deaconesses at this time. He also sends many greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow, and all these people that he knew from elsewhere. Greet this one and that one and this one and that one. He knows all these people, and they've all moved to Rome. They've gone back to Rome now that the edict has been lifted. But Paul wants to go to Spain. Now, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, through faith for faith. As it's written, the one who is righteous will live, will live by faith. Righteousness. What's righteousness? It's another big, important theme in Romans, a towering theme. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Paul is echoing Habakkuk, as he will echo 60 different times in the Old Testament in this short letter to the Romans. Um, Habakkuk is similar to Paul. He was a prophet of the Old Testament, but he had to give a message of hope in the midst of a message of God's impending judgment. Judgment is coming. Same thing with Paul. He'll give a message of hope but God's judgment is coming. What's the human problem? The human problem is sin. All have sinned. We are all banished from communion with the Trinity. We're cursed. We've been kicked out of the garden. Why? Disobedience. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. He told them and they disobeyed. Also, lack of trust. Did God really say that? They did not trust the Father. They didn't trust his word, that it was true, 100% true, that he never lies. Jesus came, reversed the curse, entered as a brother into our humanity, modeled perfect obedience and trust of the Father, washed us clean with the waters of baptism, fed us from the blood of his side, the Eucharist, filled us with his Holy Spirit so we can live by the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, gave us... That dynamite power the Holy Spirit needed to trust and obey. To walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, not the flesh. But it will take obedience. Obedience is a choice. Obedience, that is faith. And then he's going to turn to Abraham as an example. And this really helped me get it. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So three times the Lord God revealed himself to Abraham. He's leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, and God says, Abraham, Abraham. He didn't even know who he was, and he called him out of Ur, out of his homeland, away from his family to come. And Abraham obeyed. Then in Abraham, and he said, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sand. You're going to have so many kids. And he's like, well, you know, my wife's barren, and she's in her 90s, and I'm almost 100. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, and, and the Lord, he believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. They were in right relationship. That's what righteousness means. And then God split all these animal carcasses, puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and God alone comes through the animal carcasses, through the blood, as a smoking pot and a fiery torch while Abraham sleeps. This covenant will be dependent on God's faithfulness. And Abraham got older and older and older. 
And his faith got older and older and older, which means his faith got deeper and deeper and deeper as life experiences will grow us in our faith if we're open to that. God gifts Abraham then with the ultimate test. And Abraham passed it with flying colors. The test involved the obedience of faith. It was in Genesis 22, the command to sacrifice Isaac. I've given you a son now. Now take him up to the mountain. The obedience that is faith. You want me to do what? I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mountains that I will show you. A burnt offering. Oh. Abraham must trust the Lord and he must obey the Lord. He must do what the Lord has asked of him. The righteous shall live by faith. Will he trust the Lord fully? Will he be obedient to what the Lord has asked? Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. The obedience that is faith. The evidence of his faith, he will obey the Lord. Faith that grew over a lifetime for Abraham. Faith starts as small as a little speck, a little tiny mustard seed. Abraham wasn't always faithful. In Genesis chapter 12, he did not trust God. He told uh, Abraham lied to the Egyptian king and said, Oh, Sarah's not my wife, she's my sister. And he let the Egyptian king lie with his wife, use his wife. He did not trust God. They weren't having a kid. It wasn't happening. Sarah said, sleep with Hagar, my maidservant. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust his plan. Abraham had relations with Hagar, the maidservant, slept with her and conceived a child named Ishmael. But as he aged and as he learned and as he repented and as he grew, his faith grew and grew and grew and continued to grow. Sometimes I probably expect too much out of my kids and where they're at in their faith walk. Because my son will say to me, Mom, were you this way when you were 20? And I'm like, yes, I was. No, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. You know, life and life's experiences and the times we fall and the times we get back up and the times we repent build our faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed can grow over a lifetime with the help of the Holy Spirit. So Abraham is given this incredible test, the obedience of his faith. Will he do it? Yes, yes, he obeys the Lord. He trusts the Lord. David also, King David, speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. David knew that true comfort comes when iniquity is pardoned because he had fallen into sin with Bathsheba, a sin of lust and adultery. And then he killed her husband Uriah, guilty of adultery and murder. And David goes to the Lord, pours out his heart. He's a man after the Lord's own heart. Read Psalm 51 if you ever need a good psalm of contrition. If you've done something you regret, something you've sinned, go read Psalm 51. It's David's repentance after being with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. We hear the priest say that at Mass as he washes his hands. Was Abraham reconciled to God before or after his circumcision? How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, says Paul, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Righteousness, being in right relationship with God, being in covenant with God, in right relationship. Now remember when Abraham took matters into his own hands and Hagar conceived Ishmael. The Lord is silent for the next 13 years. Abraham does not hear from the Lord. And then one day the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, Oh, Abraham, the Lord's back. The Lord's back. It's the Lord's voice. And he says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Say what? What? <laughs> And so 
Abraham takes his whole household. Abraham believes the Lord, first of all. He believes the Lord. Now, if you didn't believe the Lord, this is a tough sell. Because he takes, you know, he takes his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. And I have a 13-year-old son. And if I said, honey, I've got a Dolph Clint knife in the kitchen. <laughs> Abraham believes the Lord. He's obedient. He is circumcised. I think he was 99 years old. 99-year-old man circumcised himself with a dull flint knife and his whole entire household. So they believed the Lord first because you would not do that if you didn't believe what the Lord said. And one year later, Isaac is conceived. Outward sign of an inward reality. You are mine. Circumcise yourself. Seal yourself for me. I want an outward sign that we are in right relationship, that you are righteous, that we are in covenant, Abraham. I've claimed you as my own. You're righteous before me. Now circumcise yourself and your whole household. And Abraham is obedient. And they are all circumcised. Now Isaac, the son of promise, was circumcised then on the eighth day. That was the new covenant. Circumcision on the eighth day, an outward sign that we are in right relationship. We are righteous with God. Jesus, the son of promise, a prototype of Isaac, will be circumcised on the eighth day in Luke chapter 2. That was God's plan. The outward sign of the old covenant, you are in right relationship with me. That's not going to be the sign of the new covenant. The sign of the new covenant is going to be if you partake in the Eucharistic meal of the Paschal Lamb, the new Passover Lamb, the Eucharist, is the new covenant sign, along with the water of baptism. Both things came out of the side of the Lord, the water of baptism and the blood of the Eucharistic meal. They are both new covenant signs. They were both there in the garden all along. These are the signs of the new covenant. Are you baptized? Are you partaking of the sacraments? Obedience of faith, living in line with Christ's bride, who was pulled from the side of Christ on the cross. Do you partake in the sacraments of the church? There were a lot of circumcised Jews who did not live their faith. They had the circumcision, but they were not living it. And there are a lot of baptized Christians who do not live the faith. They've been baptized, they file through the communion line, but they don't live the faith. And God later asked for a circumcised heart, a heart of not stone, but flesh. The righteous will live by faith. I, I will know how you live. But if you live by faith, are you obedient to faith? The Pew Research Center did a report how many Catholics regularly in America say they regularly attend Mass. Four out of ten. 41% say they attend worship once a week. That means 60% don't. That's not partaking in the new covenant. That's not living the obedience of the faith. Am I in right relationship? Am I in full covenant? That's why we worry about our kids when they're not going to mass. When they go to college and they say, I'm not going to mass right now. Don't worry about it. We worry about it because you're not in full covenant. Am I in full communion with the church that Jesus founded by authority from the father? Do I submit myself to the authority that Christ established in his one flesh bride? Is this where I dwell? Is this where I make my home? If you are not doing that, get going. Pray for discernment. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord, what is truth? Am I in the fullness of the truth? Why? Why should we do that? Because Paul says, judgment is coming. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans 14.10. Judgment is eminent. Now, did God save Isaac because his dad had a circumcision? So we see all these beautiful paintings. And the angel comes and, she's, and, and the angel says, oh, 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 wait a minute, Abraham, wait a minute. Um, could you drop your drawers a minute? I got to check something. <laughs> oh, you're circumcised. Oh, let Isaac go. No. The Lord saved Isaac 
because of Abraham's obedience of faith. Get it? Abraham is ready to do what the Lord has asked, to trust the Lord and to do it. It wasn't anything to do with his circumcision. It's his obedience that he will trust the Lord and do what the Lord has asked. He will hear and obey in one action. He will live the faith. He will be obedient to the faith. It's not that he had a circumcision, but it's that he has obedience of faith. He has a circumcised heart. He wants to follow the Lord. Hoping against all hope, Abraham believed that what he would, that he would be the father of many nations. So if he kills his kid, is he going to be the father of many nations? According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. But he did. He hoped against hope. He did believe it. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's old womb. No distrust. No distrust. Adam did not trust the Lord. Abraham fully trusted the Lord. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God. He worshiped the Lord, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. And that's the obedience of faith. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He is in right relationship with God. Abraham's faith, his trust and obedience kept him in right relationship with God. Unlike Adam, whose distrust and disobedience kept him in wrong relationship with God and got him kicked out of the garden, banished, bamus, bye. People have been misunderstanding the meaning of Paul's letters for a very, 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 very long time. Really. Yes, really. They must have been misunderstanding for a very long time because St. Peter, our first pope, even says it. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 15, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. So even back then, in the time of Peter, people were twisting and misunderstanding Paul's epistles. One person that misunderstood was the Augustinian Catholic monk named Martin Luther. He misread Paul. Romans is the longest and most influential letter. No letter in world history has been read more or scrutinized more. No other letter in world history has been commented on more in biblical commentary. No other letter in world history has been more misinterpreted than Romans. No other letter has had such great impact on world history. This letter shook the Jewish and Christian world and went all over the Mediterranean. This letter can change hearts. This letter can change minds for both ways. This is St. Monica and St. Augustine. Augustine was very wayward. He had a pagan father, and he was not living in right relationship with God. He was sinning and sinning and sinning. And his mother prayed and 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 prayed until she looked like this. Do any of you all pray to St. Monica for any of your kids? I do a lot. I love her as an intercessor for wayward sons. Augustine was quite old, and he said, give me chastity, but not yet. And that's a true quote from him. Because he had a mistress who he loved very much, and he had a child with her. And they weren't married. They were living in sin. His mother knew it. And she prayed and prayed and prayed. He listened to the homilies of St. Am- Ambrose. He tried every philosophy known to man. He was very smart. But he was going to have to crucify his flesh and not be with his mistress anymore. And he wasn't ready to do that. But one day, he was in the park sitting on a bench, and he heard children doing a, holding hands and singing. And they were saying, take and read, take and read, take and read. And he had a scroll next to him. He picked it up, and he opened it to Romans chapter 13. He had an instantaneous conversion by the power of the word of God that pierced his heart. And here's what he read. 
Augustine, the hour has come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, Augustine, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Boom. The sword of the word of God pierced his heart and he had a conversion. He became one of the doctors of the church and he's called the doctor of grace because of the way he read the book of Romans. He loved the book of Romans. Now, an Augustinian Catholic monk in the line of St. Augustine, this is Augustine's order, an Augustinian Catholic monk named Martin Luther comes along and reads Romans and Galatians in a different way that changed the Catholic world forever, and it now becomes divided from then to now. There are now Catholics and Protestants, where for the first 1,500 years, we were all one body in Christ. So now the body of Christ has been fractured. There's two groups, Catholic and Protestant. There are gospel people, and there are epistle people. It all depends on which glasses you see through. It depends on how you read St. Paul. Catholics are gospel people. Catholics see through the lenses of the gospels. I'll give you an example. We get dinged a lot for, oh, you Catholics think you have to work your way to heaven. Faith and works, faith and works. Ah, you da, 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 da. What does Jesus say in Matthew 25 about the final judgment? When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, and he will sit on the glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. You Catholics, you do all those works of corporal mercy. You do all that stuff. It's just what Jesus said to do. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger or welcome you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All those things are works, corporal works of mercy. Corporal works of love. Corporal works of charity. And the Lord wants us to do those. Sheep and goats. The sheep says, I fed the hungry. And the goat says, yeah, whatever. Protestants are more epistle people. Protestants see it through the lenses of the epistles. Epistle people interpret everything through Paul's letters. It all depends on which glasses you see through. For epistle people, there's a canon within a canon. Romans and Galatians are first. First read by Protestants, and most scripture is interpreted through that lens. Catholics look at the whole entire canon of the Bible, old and new, and the unity of the two testaments and the total message. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul's epistles have preeminence with Protestants, especially Romans and Galatians. For Catholics, the Gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the heart of the scriptures because they are the principal source for life and teaching of the incarnate Savior, Jesus Christ himself. These are the words of Christ, the words in red. The four gospels occupy a central place because Jesus Christ is their center. That's why Pope Francis venerates the word of God. He kisses it. The church draws her life and her strength from sacred scripture. Catholics stand up when the gospel is read out of respect and reverence to the words of Jesus Christ. Incense is put around God's word. 
Only an ordained minister can read the gospel at mass. You must be a deacon or a priest. You must be ordained. No layperson can read the sacred word of God. Aside from the presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, there's nothing that the church honors more reverently than Christ's presence in the sacred scripture. He is the word itself. Then Paul's going to give them some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Paul says, let me start with the bad news. Then they'll really like the good news. Okay, so he starts off with the bad news. The bad news is this, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth, who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God has written himself on the human heart. The moral law is written on the human heart. The natural law is written on the human heart. We know it deep down. You can suppress the truth if you want but it's there. You know you didn't make yourself. You know you can't create. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. No one has an out here. The catechism said, no one is deemed to be ignorant of the principles of the moral law, which are written in the conscience of every man. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem is when we don't worship God, when we don't glorify him as God or give him thanks, that's called worship. When we quit worshiping the Lord, we quit going to mass. We quit worshiping God as the number one thing in our life, as the absolute number one front and center thing in our life. It's very dangerous if you stop worshiping the Lord because your thinking will grow darkened and you will become futile with a foolish heart that's darkened. When we cease to glorify God, it's very dangerous. It will only lead to destruction every time if we stop worshiping God. And that's why we don't want our kids to fall away from going to mass in the sacraments because thinking becomes futile and foolish hearts become darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, the Roman gods were all around and they looked like men and they, they looked like reptiles and birds and the Egyptians had God and the Greeks had God. The Greco-Roman gods were always arguing each other and seducing humans. And, 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 and then there was the imperial cult that was the fastest growing religion in Rome where the emperors were gods, they were deities and sons of gods and prince of peace. And Paul says, no, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Do we do this today? We're past that, right? Because we have Christ now. Do you know how many billions of dollars will be spent Sunday on the Super Bowl to watch these men chase this little ball around? Billions! Do you know how much commercial time is for one minute? Worshiping the created instead of the creator. Do you know how much Americans spend in one year on their pets? $52 billion. It's gone up and up and up and up and up and up. Over 250 dolphins were captured off Japan's coast last Friday. Every channel was covering it, a big news story. 250 dolphins are trapped, oh my gosh, the dolphins, oh the poor baby dolphins, oh we gotta save the dolphins. Where over 57 million legal abortions of babies have occurred since Roe v. Wade. And we're all in a tizzy over 250 dolphins when 57 million babies, human babies, have been taken off to be incinerated. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever. Amen. Idolatry, when we quit worshiping the Lord fully, completely, and worship anything else, it will lead to sexual immorality. Every time in scripture, they worship a calf, a golden calf. 
leads to them playing, starts the orgy. Solomon, great king, wise, wise, wise king, quit reading Torah to the people. Took a thousand women into his bed. Sexual immorality follows idolatry in the scriptures. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Natural exchanged for unnatural. When we don't worship God and keep him first in our culture, in our society, in our lives, when we don't worship God and give him the glory due, we will fall into sexual immorality every single time. Sexual immorality in a cultural shift. Ralph Martin just wrote this article. He sent it to me yesterday morning. It says, young Catholics just in the last 10 years have come to believe that active homosexuality is morally permissible. There's been a major culture change in the last 10 years. I don't know if you've noticed it with your own kids. It should be viewed with equal regard, even recognized as marriage, on an equivalent basis with heterosexual marriage. The culture is changing. The culture is shifting. Our young people are buying this lie of Satan. When we fail to worship God, our thinking becomes darkened. Our futile thinking becomes darkened and disordered. When Adam and Eve didn't put God's word first, their thinking became darkened and the world became disordered, chaos again. God had to recreate. When they fell, God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband Eve, but he will rule it over you. Women will become objectified. Women will become an object of man's lust now in a disordered world. Sexual immorality will always follow. And then all sorts of sins resulted. And you went through them in your group, sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. So Paul said, that's the bad news. The wrath of God and judgment is coming. But the good news is, and this is my last slide. This is the good news, and this can be our final prayer. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for the justification that came through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, through his obedience and his trust in you. We ask for that same obedience of faith and that same trust in you, Father, that we could worship you so that we don't fall into idolatry and that we can explain to our children your truths. Lord, help us to worship you, to exalt you, to glorify you, to honor you, to magnify you. We thank you for our salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and a way back to you through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord. See you next Wednesday. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.